And if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, open them to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. We continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark. Follow along with me, Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged him to tell no one about him. This ends the reading of the Word of God. There is no greater question to ask and to answer than this. Who do you say Jesus is? This is the question that is before us this morning. And this is a question that all of us will answer before we leave here today. For many of us today, hearing this question and answering it will be a reaffirmation of what we believe, what we confess. And for others in here, maybe for the first time, affirming this question. But in either case, God has been gracious to you this morning, for by providence you are here to hear this message from God's Word. Let us pray. Oh, Father, I pray for clarity, for precision, for boldness, for courage, and for humility. Let your word fall upon your people, applied by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. What we see here in Mark chapter 8, we're moving from confusion to clarity. And this is a pinnacle passage. It is at the very center of the gospel of Mark. It is the first time that the name Christ has been mentioned since chapter 1, verse 1. And he is finally revealed in this passage. I want you to notice here the scene in which we are about to enter into. In verse 27, Jesus went on with his disciples. They moved to this region, this, this, the villages of Caesarea Philippi. I don't want to get lost in that, but understanding this location will once again help us to see the, the beauty and the, the vastness of what is to take place in this region. They're moving on from Bethsaida, which is on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, and they're traveling 20 miles north to this region of Caesarea Philippi. Let's just understand it's not Caesarea and it's not Philippi. These are two different locations. This isn't the place where Paul was uh, thrown in prison or anything like this. This is Caesarea Philippi. What we need to understand about this place is that it's a dark place. There was a shrine uncovered to the pagan god Pan that was discovered through excavations, who was a god of forests, flocks, and shepherds, ironically. Alexander the Great in the 3rd century B.C. led his conquest through here, through this region. 
bringing in Hellenistic Greek culture, making Koine Greek the language. And so this Hellenistic culture of, uh, of Greek influence permeates the region. And this is where Jesus is. This is where Jesus is with his disciples. He is amid a vast pagan area that is also littered with secularism. This is Caesarea Philippi. It doesn't sound too much different than our current context today, the land in which we live in. And we read here in Mark's recording here in verse 27, let me call your attention back to the text. He says, and on the way. So what's going on here is Jesus and his 12 disciples have moved on from Bethsaida. They're traveling north among these villages and on the way. He strikes up this conversation. Usually it's the pupil who asks the teacher questions, but now in this case, the teacher is the one asking questions. And Luke would record for us it was after a season of much prayer and solitude that Jesus strikes up this conversation, and he starts to ask certain questions. No doubt this conversation is of extreme importance. So let me give you the structure of this passage. We have two questions We have two answers. Jesus starts with the general. There's a general question, a general answer. Then he moves to a specific question, demanding a specific answer. You will notice that is reflective of your outline. And so we will follow the structure of this text as it is presented, as is recorded by Mark. First, we notice here in verse 27, a general question. Who do people say that I am. It's not a question of ignorance. No, this is the God-man speaking. This is, this is the omniscient one. But it is a question to probe at his disciples. It is really a question to set up the next question. So Jesus asks a general question. Let's observe of this question. It's a non-threatening question. It's not overly intimidating. Who do people say that I am? It says Jesus is saying, what's the word about me? I've been at this publicly now for two years. Certainly people have formed conclusions or speculated about who I am. Uh, Let's understand this. This is not a bad approach, by the way, when engaging with unbelievers. Move from the general to the specific. But we must understand this question is about identity. Jesus is asking a question about identity, not what do people think about me or what's my reputation, Who do people say that I am? We know this is a question of identity because of the way in which the disciples respond. Notice the answer in verse 28. From the general question to a general answer. They say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. It's not hard for them to answer this question. This is the, 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 the talk among the crowds, among the populace, among the people. These are the things that they would have heard as they were passing out the loaves and, and the fish among the crowds. As they engaged with the people, this is the word on the street concerning who this first century miracle worker is. But I want you to notice here from this general answer, There's no consensus. There is no consensus among the people. No, there's many answers. There's no clarity. 
we can conclude there's much confusion among the crowds, among the people, concerning the identity of Jesus. That's not much different than the world we live in today. Yet this answer does reveal to us some undeniable realities concerning the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Think about it for a minute. Some say John the Baptist. Well, who's, who's this? Who's John the Baptist? Why would they confuse Jesus with John the Baptist? Well, what do we know about the Baptist? He's a bold preacher. Well, at this point in Mark's gospel, he's dead. But he was a bold preacher. He was an absolute lion. He didn't walk on eggshells. He crushed them. He offended people with his message. For those that knew better, he would look them square in the face and said, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John wasn't scared of anyone. To Herod, who unlawfully took Philip, his half-brother's wife, and made made her his wife, he looked at Herod in his face and said, you are in sin. Repent. And it cost him his head. John the Baptist reminds me of a figure some 16 centuries after him. The Scottish reformer John Knox, who was a firebrand of a preacher, who on multiple occasions denounced Mary, Queen of Scots, for her support and hearing of the abomination of the Mass. It is said at one time he confronted her in her presence, but she dared not touch him, but rather squealed like a pig upon the preaching and the power of his preaching. So in confusing Jesus with John the Baptist, what people understood of Jesus was that John and Jesus had similar type ministries in this way, at least in their preaching ministries. What does Jesus say of John the Baptist? In Matthew eleven eleven? he said, those born among women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. From the mouth of Jesus, John the Baptist is the greatest man who ever lived, born of natural birth of natural generation between a man and a woman. But the confusion continues. Others say Elijah. Well, this is interesting that they would confuse Jesus with Elijah. This name literally means, my God is Yahweh. Who was Elijah? He was a prophet. He was a miracle worker. Well, we can see then why people might have confused Jesus in this way. In seeing the undeniable miracles of Jesus, those that tasted of those loaves and of those fish, those that saw the lame stand up, the blind see. He's a miracle worker. He's, 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 maybe he's the second coming of, of Elisha. Maybe he's the fulfillment of Malachi 4.5, which says that the Lord will send Elijah the prophet before that great and awesome day of the Lord. What else do we know about Elijah? He was a man of fervent prayer. James is very clear about this in James chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed fervently. So in identifying Jesus here with Elijah, we also see Jesus, the great prayer warrior, the miracle worker who lived out the name Elijah My God is Yahweh. 
But there is no consensus. Others say, of the crowd say, one of the prophets. It's as though the people say, we don't know who he is. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, Joel, Obadiah, he's someone. He's someone important. Why do they identify him as one of the prophets? Well, what did the prophets do? They spoke the word of God, and they were largely rejected. Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, much like Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who, like the prophet, spoke the word of God, and he too was rejected even in his own hometown. So what do we make here of verse 27, these general answers concerning the identity of Jesus? We should conclude this. They are all partially correct. Identifying Jesus as John the Baptist, yes, he is a great person. Elijah, yes, he is a great, he did great miracles and a prayer warrior. The prophets, yes, Jesus, a great preacher. And while all these answers are partially correct, they are also totally wrong. They all miss the mark. Brothers and sisters, you see, people can say good things about Jesus. They can identify Jesus as one of the greatest people that ever lived. They can place him in these categories and fail to know Jesus. It is an undeniable fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the greatest influencer this world has ever seen. He had, he's had more followers than everybody on YouTube combined. There is no doubt that the, that the greatest of Je- Jesus is the, has had the greatest impact on the world. It is uncomparable. There is not a second place podium next to him. Secular historians will tell you this. There has not been one life that has crossed the horizon of this earth that has influenced humanity more than Jesus of Nazareth. Islam recognizes him as a revered prophet. They would say, yes, one of the prophets. But Jesus himself recognizes that these general answers fail. They are left wanting. And so he turns from the general answers to the specific. Jesus is about to get direct. Notice here in verse 29, we read, but who do you say that I am? Modern translations are very good, but sometimes they too miss the mark. Something gets lost here in translation in verse 29. The NIV and the CSB try to make up for it by beginning their translation of verse 29 with these words. It says, but you, who do you say that I am? What we must understand here in verse 29 is the emphatic word of the passage is you. This is the great emphasis here that is placed. It's not I am, but it's you. Jesus is getting direct here. He's getting to the you. Jesus is asking a personal question, direct, and he's demanding a response. This is the most important question ever asked. And while he asks it to his disciples in the region of Caesarea Philippi, this question must be asked and answered of every generation. 
So I pose the question to bear upon you. Who do you say that he is? Notice here, the question is not, who does your pastor say that he is? Who does your parents say that he is? Who does your partner say that he is? No, that's not the question. We must understand, the question is the you. Who do you say that Jesus of Nazareth is? He asks you this day, who do you say that I am? So who is he? To answer this question incorrectly It does not matter what you can articulate correctly. To miss on this is to miss everything. To get this question wrong, it does not matter what you get right in this life. To be uncertain here is to be uncertain everywhere. And it is my prayer that even by the end of this message now, there would be no uncertainty in this room, that there would be no doubt concerning the identity of Jesus of Nazareth, that you would be convinced, but I can't do that. The Holy Spirit does. Oh, that the Holy Spirit would convince you of your minds and your hearts. For your eternity, your salvation, your destiny is wrapped up in this question. I cannot stress the severity and the seriousness of what is before us right now. If you are checking out, if you are on your phone or thinking about lunch, come back. If you are feeling the heat and you are getting tired, sit up straight. This moment means everything. We are talking about eternity. This is heaven and hell. This is life and death. This is not a trifle. This isn't just continue through the routine. No. There is not a single soul of cognitive reasoning this side of the cross that has missed on this question and found themselves in heaven. For if Jesus needs to introduce himself to you when you die, be sure of this, heaven is not your home. Pay careful attention to what you confess and what you believe concerning Christ. You will give an account. You will stand before the judgment seat you will face him. You, personally. You, directly. You must answer the question. So, this is the specific question, and the specific question demands a specific answer. Generalities won't do, because if they did, Jesus would have been satisfied with the answer in verse 29. So let's look at the specific answer. We read, Peter answered. We could get a little nervous when Peter talks. Because we will get a little nervous in the next passage when Peter talks. But right now, Peter hits the home run. This is the grand slam. This is the walk-off. This is the game winner. You are the Christ. Matthew elaborates further, the son of the living God. Brothers and sisters, what we have to understand here is this is the only acceptable answer. But what does he mean? We're not going to talk about him in generalities. What does it mean, the Christ? Let's unpack this for a moment. First, 
Consider the definite article. He says, the. He doesn't say you are a Christ as if there could be another. He says you are the Christ. Singular. The only one. This definite article speaks to exclusivity. There could never be another. There could only be one Christ. Peter would later say in his letter that the prophets of old inquired and looked into this to the time in which he was standing right there. All of the Old Testament, all of redemptive history was pointing to this moment, to this person. Every book and every page of your Bible is pointing to him. And what Peter is saying here is you are the, the one, the only Christ. Let me just remind you, if you don't know, Christ is not his last name. No. Christ is a title. Christos, it is the New Testament form of the Old Testament word, Messiah. He's saying you are Jesus the Messiah. You are the Christ, meaning the anointed one. The anointed one of God, the chosen one. You are the hope of Israel. You are the salvation of God's people. This is what he's confessing in this moment. You are the promised one of God by whom all redemptive history has been pointing to. Now, he still needed a little more clarity, you would see in the next passage, but he confesses Jesus the Christ. In this confession, as we would know it even further with the whole canon of Scripture, we know that he is the greater John the Baptist. He is the greater Elijah he is the greater prophet than Moses. He's the seed of the woman in Genesis. The Passover lamb in Exodus. He's our high priest in Leviticus. The rock from whom water flows in Numbers. He's the covenant keeper in Deuteronomy. He's the, he's the, he's the host and he's the, the commander of the armies of the Lord in Joshua. The perfect judge in Judges. Our kinsman redeemer in Ruth in First and Second Samuel. The prophet of God in First and Second King. The greater king of glory and of grace in Chronicles. He is the promised seed and the son of David who will reign for eternity. Ezra, the proclaimer of freedom. I could go on. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of what is broken. Esther, he is the protector of his people. In Job, he is the living redeemer. Psalms, the good shepherd. Proverbs, the wisdom of God. Who do you say that he is? Ecclesiastes, he's the reason for living. Song of Solomon, he is the groom who loves his bride, the church. Isaiah, the suffering servant. Jeremiah and Lamentations, the weeping Messiah. In Ezekiel, he's the son of man. Daniel, the one who approaches the ancient of days, who holds all power and all authority. Hosea, he's the faithful husband. And Joel, he's the sender of the Holy Spirit. Amos, he is the burden bearer. Obadiah, he is the mighty savior. In Jonah, he is the wrath appeasing sacrifice who suffers and is brought back on the third day. Micah, he is the beautiful messenger of peace. In Nahum, he is the vindicator of God's elect. 
In Habakkuk, he is the justifier of those who have faith in him. In Zephaniah, he is the warrior who saves Haggai, the restorer of worship. Zechariah, he's the pierced one. And Malachi, he is the son of righteousness who brings healing. Who do you say that he is? And when we reach the New Testament, he is here. He is the son of the living God, not a mere man. In John 1, he is the word of God, the Father made flesh. He is the fullness of God who dwells in him bodily, the fullness of God dwelling in him bodily. Who do you say that he is? Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, he is the savior of sinners, the redeemer of the ransomed, the healer of the hurt, the head of the church, the son of God, the second member of the Trinity, the lover of our souls, and he's coming back to vindicate his people and bring his bride home. He is Jesus the Christ. Who do you say that he is? How do we answer this question? How do we respond to this question? There's only one acceptable thing that every living, breathing soul in this room must do. Confess Christ. You might have walked in here this morning not convinced. Maybe your parents dragged you to church. Maybe for some reason you just had this inclination, I should go to church. I don't know why. I don't know why you're here. God does. Maybe you came in here not convinced, unbelieving. I would plead with you now that you would repent, you would believe the gospel, you would confess Christ. What do I mean by these words? When we speak of the gospel, we talk about Jesus the Christ, very God, a very God who came and lived a perfect life, sinless, a life of obedience, and died a sinner's death, which he did not deserve, in order to pay for sins he did not commit. Yours and mine. Buried on a Friday, raised on a Sunday, and all who come in repentance and faith will find the forgiveness of sins in his name. Believe this gospel. Turn from the sins that nailed him there. Confess Christ. As we read in Romans chapter 10, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Confess Christ. If you are an unbeliever, that's all you can do. Believer. What should you do? Confess Christ. Fathers, in your homes, in your marriages, confess Christ. Others, in your workplace, as you go in life, like Peter, you are the Christ. And that makes all the difference in our lives, in our relationships, in our doings, in our thinking. Mothers, make much of Jesus to your children. Confess Christ. Young person, confess Christ. Don't waste your life chasing after things that don't matter. Confess Christ. 
Confess Christ among your friends, single person. Devote your, your, your life, your energy, your effort into making your confession of Christ the center of your being. If it costs you your job, confess Christ. If it costs you your family, confess Christ. If it costs you your life, confess Christ. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to forfeit his own soul? I would rather be accepted by Jesus and rejected by this world than the other way around. For to be accepted by this world and rejected by Christ, that is of eternal significance, eternal consequence. What can the world do to me? Reject me? Marginalize me? Ostracize me? All they can do at worst is kill me. Don't fear him who can kill the body, but rather fear him who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. Have no fear of them. Confess Christ if it costs you everything. If no one else will, confess Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the hill that we die on. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Is that your confession? Who do you say that he is? Let's conclude this message and why don't we finish on some words from C.S. Lewis. In his book, Mere Christianity, he said these words, quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, nor did he intend to. So friends, with one voice, we confess Christ. And in doing so, we give all glory to Christ. As we will sing now, please stand.